The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operations services. By Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, let's solve water. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By the American Waterworks Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. And by CanDo providing actionable insights from utility wastewater data to improve environmental and public health. This is Session 193. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. We have a mind-blowing show for you today. We have James Perry of Utilis who joins us to discuss synthetic aperture radar and its surprising and unique applications in the water sector. Uh, James, he's, he's going to blow your mind, like I say with this, he's going to blow your mind uh, by talking about how you can, with a satellite imagery, you can pinpoint water uh water signature underground and how they're using that initially to help utilities find leaks but there are so many other applications uh and you know as you're going through this your mind's just going to start racing as to uh, how sar synthetic aperture radar can be used uh in the water sector it's 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 a fascinating discussion with james uh we also have reese tisdale coming on with the bluefield on tap segment we'll get to that in just a moment but first and as always a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Woodard & Curran, Intera, Xylem, Black & Veatch, the American Waterworks Association, Association, and Can Do. And I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you would, please. If you work for or with any of these sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks can go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, please, please, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd greatly be appreciated and, of course, will help others find out about the podcast. Now it's time for this month's Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale, where we're going to talk about uh, the California drought and how water utilities with experience in water stress regions are bringing expertise to other areas. So uh, it's a re really interesting discussion with Reese. Uh, so take it away, guys. Well, Reese, welcome back for another Bluefield on Tap segment. How are you this week? I'm pretty good. It's been a month. How am I this month? <laughs> Things are good. Good, good. All well in the Boston sports world? The Bruins are to the next stage of the playoffs. The Red Sox playing well. I'm going to have to retract what I said, I think, earlier in the year on maybe it was opening day when we were talking. <laughs> and I was like, the Red Sox are going to be terrible. Um, yeah. we got a long way to go. And uh, the Celtics are about to get blown out. But, hey, you know, all we need is one championship a year. That's all we're <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's what, being, a, being a Mariners fan, uh, one championship a year, uh, it just seems so far out of reach. Um, <laughs> with all the teams that I follow in any event, a lot going on. Uh, what is catching your eye 
in the water sector this month? So, well, we obviously have a lot going on at Bluefield, but one thing that is the topic du jour, or or it seems like we're here every year increasingly, and that (laughs) is what's happening in California. Um, 26% of the state has gone into what the highest level or of drought or extreme drought. And so what's ended up happening is Sacramento is now uh, pushing for targets to reduce water usage by 10%, Russian River area by 20%. So it's getting pretty bad. And we're really at the beginning of the dry season. So the state has a long way to go. And I think, you know, what I thought was also interesting about this is, why doesn't the state, you know, in 2014, 2015, they implemented uh, conservation targets. The governor seems to be um, holding back from that. And I think part of it is, one, he's got his own political woes to deal with, but also post-COVID, everybody's sick of mandates and maybe the government telling them what to do. So this could ultimately be a real problem for the state. But Drought in California seems to be somewhat chronic. Yeah. Well, uh, and it's that last point I'd like to kind of key on is I know there are some other commentators out there that have said, you know, when are we going to stop calling it a drought that this is just normal? You know, when, when are utility, when are utilities and people and, and everyone just going to realize that it's it's not drought, this is normal. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, and it's not just California, that's obviously the, the biggest state that everybody focused on, but the Western U.S. in particular, the whole region is facing this every year in one form or another. And yeah, it is the way of life. And now ultimately, what is it going to end up doing? Is it going to drive people out of the region? You know, farmers are just not going to be as uh, successful or profitable, quite honestly. Um, but there are other things that are coming out of it. I think, you know, there's a lot of experience. I mean, if that's the case, there's a lot of experience to be gained from this and managing it. Uh, it seems like cities and utilities kind of know what to do to some extent, or at least have been through it. So there's a lot of expertise. And you and I have talked a lot about IOUs and just utility acquisitions. Utilities as a whole have to deal with this, right? And so how are they going to deal with it? And they can learn from others. Yeah. Well, on on that note, uh, um, what, can the lessons learned by utilities be exported uh, to other regions from California or, or quote unquote drought stricken regions? I would say yes. Right. I mean, it's everything from how do you cost effectively implement reuse systems? Um, how do you implement, uh, just more efficient water usage? And so I think a good example of that would be, um, just recently, Cal Water, Cal, California Water Services Group, which of which I think 90% of its uh, holdings are in the state of California. It also has positions in Washington State, Hawaii, and Oregon, I believe, or New Mexico, New Mexico. They have just entered Texas. And I think one of their, I guess, justifications or one of the positions they're taking is they've learned a lot from how to deal with wildfires in California. They've learned a lot from how to deal with drought they can take some of those same strategies to California because as we know, I think we've already talked about the winter storm in California. That was an emergency crisis. How to be not only how to react to it, but also how to be prepared for it. And I think particularly in a state like California, there are a lot of small systems, underfunded systems 
of which someone like Cal Water could, you know, actually roll them up through acquisition. And that could be one of their pitches to the communities to say, we can create, we understand how to build resilience in the system and the network. That's why you should allow us to buy your system. Yeah. That's one case. That's a great example, you know, and, and it just of not, not all utilities are the same, right? There are different stratifications and Cal water obviously has uh, obtained some experience in dealing with these types of conditions and messaging to customers and things like that. Uh, so that that's uh, a very interesting point you made. Uh, anything else that's kind of, uh, you know, that can kind of shape or contour our understanding of that issue? I mean, I think, you know, I think you hit it is, you know, well, I would say, you know, it, it is the new norm. I think one of the things actually this morning I was thinking about, um, I was actually on an early morning bike ride. And I was talking to someone as we were riding along. And one of the points that was raised, raised was, oddly enough, everybody complains about how fragmented the U.S. Uh, water system, water network is across 50,000 you know, uh, water utilities and other 15,000, 20,000 wastewater systems. Because of its fragmentation, there's actually built-in protection. You know, you can only, you know, if one system fails you can hopefully go to the neighboring county and, uh, and find supplies. So there's some protection in that. So I'm going to, f- maybe that's my new take on the world. Hey, this is, we're better off because of this. Uh, <laughs> and so there is some resiliency by nature built into this fragmented, uh, landscape that we live in. Yeah. Well, good deal. Well, Reese, as always really appreciate your insights and, uh, sharing of information. Great job today. And we'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you next time. All right, Dave, take it easy. Uh, Summer's here. Look forward to it. Amen. All right. Bye, Reese. As always, great information from Bluefield Research with Reese Tisdale. Uh, Thanks much, Reese. Great to have you back on. Uh, Now it's time for our feature guest, James Perry of Utilis. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Jim, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad to have you on. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, Good morning to you, David, as well, too. All right. Thanks. Hey, uh, for those who don't know you, Jim, could you give your, give us a little thumbnail about who you are, what you do, kind of how you got interested in water? Yeah, for me, it's uh, it's been really an amazing journey, one of excitement. And uh, early in my career, I was with multiple either family businesses or startups. And uh, off, often with the startups, it was really around taking innovation and great ideas and then testing them in the market over a period of time and finding a home for them. Uh, innovation is always about the adoption and and hopefully into something that's disruptive and making the world a better place. And um, I was fortunate enough to do that at Hewlett-Packard for a number of years. And via my time at Hewlett-Packard, wanting to move from big companies and back into my roots, which were really around driving startups, I find that exciting because I like to be in cross-functional roles. I happened through uh, a lot of the acquisitions that Hewlett-Packard had done were really amazing technologies coming out of Israel. And uh, through some mutual friends, found this amazing technology uh, out of Israel. Um, was so excited about really the, the nature of it, what it does, and the potential of it that uh, I was excited to join uh, Utilis in 2016. And uh, from that period of time, we've been working on uh, share and adoption and application of synthetic aperture radar in uh, the water industry today. 
Okay. So there's, there's, there's a few things I'd like to unpack in there. Uh, let's, let's start off with the bigger stuff first, but the, the, the synthetic aperture radar that, that kind of caught my attention. Um, but let's start off with the bigger stuff first. So uh, can you, can you, you know, com, kind of compare and contrast uh, how, how the big company deals with technology to how kind of a more specialized firm, like you, you mentioned, you're now at Utilis, how, how they deal with, with technology. How- the, there, there are certainly a lot of overlap and similarities. Uh, it starts with great ideas in both instances. At big companies, you usually get a little bit more of a focus and a willingness and really the stomach at a big company to grow uh, a future, future revenue, top line and bottom line revenues. And so they'll be to a certain degree quite patient in terms of profitability. They see these as investments into the future for shareholder value down the line. Um, There's usually good resources in terms of looking again cross-functionally at the idea Um, Is there a market, a market size? How would you sell it? What other key features are required to develop this out? And really the timing of it. And a lot of that really translates well to startups, even though it's usually the same people doing everything from sweeping the floor to dealing with investors. And, And that really is one of the key differences in terms of driving enough revenue uh, to to bootstrap uh, a new idea along over time. Um, and then a lot of focus needs to go into uh, investors and trying to bring in funds so that you can invest with of enough resources coming in to be able to develop out any market. That can be a big distraction for uh, small startups versus versus big fortune 500 type companies. But really it's the same ideals. What are these great ideas? Uh, is anyone interested? If so, is it is it a market that's willing to adopt innovation? And and then you set out a good plan, plan your work, work your plan, and with a little bit of good fortune and, and hard work, it, you can uh, you can penetrate some market, gain some revenue, and and have a good market situation. Yeah, I I, I really like that explanation. Uh, you know, I, I had a recent guest on who indicated, you know, she kind of said, don't run out of money, you know, so just watch the burn rate. And uh, I, I I think that, you know, your kind of acknowledgement about uh, startups having to really pay attention to the investor side, I think, is is uh, a, a very good observation and something that that uh, uh, we all ought to keep in mind. Uh, so so I'm sorry. Go ahead. We, no, I was going to say that. Um from my perspective, this shareholder value is a big thing, whether whether it's at a Fortune 500 company or, or a small startup. And I think you're absolutely right. The advice that you heard was really about make sure that, that you've, you've got good cash flow in those early days. We were fortunate enough at Utilis to be able to have good cash flow and enough interest and enough contracts to kind of keep us going and to demonstrate not only that um, we could do what we said we were going to do, but also continue to develop it for, for the long haul. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, so you've been at Utilis now for five years. Um, and now I want to get into the synthetic aperture radar. Can you kind of, what exactly is this technology? And then we'll, once, once we understand the technology, we'll kind of get into how it can be useful in the water sector. Well, it's, it's quite a fascinating story. If you think back in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, there was an explosion of learning around wavelengths. 
visible, non-visible wavelengths um, over time. And if you think of the electric uh, characteristics and measurements of Hertz, uh, Thomas Hertz was a German scientist that was doing quite a few lab experiment, uh, experiments to find various wavelengths and identify those. And then fast forwarding over time into both the UK and the US during uh, in between World War One and World War Two, there was an explosion of wavelengths actively generating a late wavelength and then noting that wavelengths reflected off of gas liquids and solids differently and and getting that returned signal was the radar um, uh, developments that you see in, in and around World War II. So if you knew where planes were traveling from into or, or ships, uh, it was used in a significant military applications. And then that same synthetic aperture radar, the active sending of wavelengths and the returning of them um, allowed you to fine-tune as more and more research and development went into specific wavelengths. And that's really where um, uh, Utilis comes into play. There were two key characteristics. One is knowing what particular wavelengths we're uh, reflecting off of gas, liquids, and solids. That's a, a key component to it. But then secondarily, and just as import important, you had to take these big, massive buildings. If you think around the 1940s, they were huge radar antennas, antennas that would send and then receive and capture the, the particular wavelength. So to miniaturize those, put them on airborne platforms and satellites, was the next key development in parallel with discovery of wavelengths. Yeah. So, so now that we have a good foundation of what SAR is or synthetic aperture radar, how, when you kind of learned about this, uh, what, what made you jump to go to Utilis who was using this SAR? I mean, what, how, how did you recognize that SAR could be used in the water industry? There's a number of things. We had good fortune that our CTO and co-founder, Loren Guy, as he was um, working in his degrees for remote sensing, a master degree in remote sensing, there were various NASA grants uh, where they were using radar to look for water on Venus and Mars. And uh, over the last several years, you've seen many reports on uh, frozen water below ground on the, on the polar uh, surfaces of Mars in particular. So they knew that in, in, bo in both cases that moisture, water, would be below the surface or else it would evaporate. And so they were fine-tuning various wavelengths to be able to search for those waters. At the same time, while Loren was working on his remote sensing degree and, and several grants with NASA, he was also working for a, a water utility in Israel and knowing particularly the scarcity of water in the Middle East and, and, and Israel and trying to support the uh, population of Israel with water. It's a precious resource. Every drop is important. So there's a great deal of focus on uh, the invention in Israel, its startup nation, and as well to solve these challenges. And so you had a natural... Um, a combination of a person looking at science and the use of remote sensing and wavelengths and the need to use it for direct applications 
on saving water, drinking water, particularly in the state of Israel. Okay, so so let let's talk now about how synthetic aperture radar. How does it translate to? I mean, you've you've kind of said we we found water on Mars because of it. So how does how does that apply um, to a, a water wastewater utility? What do you what do you use an SAR for? If you look at the the way that we developed the product, it started with Elban. With, which is within the microwave of, of uh, wavelengths and uh, spectral imagery. So using L-band is particularly tuned. It likes the dielectric constant of water, which is essentially the electricity level of water, the salinity level of it. So now if you're able to be able to refine all water to very particular power levels, of L-band radar, you're now able to take an image, looks quite frankly like an, uh, any X-ray image that you see, and particularly in X-rays, it goes through soft tissue and rec reflects off of more dense matter like bones, and it sends a black and white image. Those white spots are the, if we think of it as the area of interest, it translates into L-band into water. And so what we've done is to be able to take that satellite imagery and to be able to digitize that, to, to um, then refine it down to the signature of drinking water. And the way that we do that, which is unique to other providers that are doing Earth observation, the one benefit and the one thing that we've done is not just to do Earth observation, but to turn that into actionable data and our first application of it was to develop an algorithm, a patented algorithm that looks specifically for the signature of drinking water below ground. And then what we do with that is to translate that into points of interest. We highlight the pipe layers for utilities, and that allows them to more efficiency, efficiently be able to take the significant miles and kilometers of their entire system and then now operationally focus it down to key areas of where we're seeing points of interest, the likelihood of leaks based on what we're seeing for drinking water, and then they can deploy additional assets to acoustically sound and then dig, fix, and repair the leaks uh, in their system. Okay, so it's a, it's a leak detection system. Is that uh, so... Uh, um... Is it, is it, it sounded almost like it was the first layer because then you said you could, after identifying those areas, then you uh, deploy acoustic technologies and other technologies to go, you know, repair the pipes. Is that, am I, am I understanding this correctly that this is kind of the overlay to more, to, to, to better identify where the leaks are occurring? Yeah, that's correct. So this is the, our first entry using synthetic aperture radar, specifically tuned towards the signature of drinking water. And for a leak detection product, and we've added multiple products now that, that broaden our scope, but for the leak detection play, that's exactly right. We're a screening tool that allows you to get to about 150 feet of where this leak is occurring because we're seeing the reflective signature of the drinking water below ground. It's assumed to be a leaking pipe. And now you're much more efficiently, rather than blindly going through thousands of miles or kilometers of pipes, now you're going to hundreds of miles of pipe. And you can much more efficiently go 
to acoustically sound. Once you pinpoint within our zoning technology, now you have enough information to meet thresholds to go dig, fix, and repair. Got it. For that water. Got it. That's fascinating. So so is there kind of a, I don't know, a minimum size leak that you anticipate the being able to identify? Or are these major leaks? Do you have any guesstimate or any data on that? We do. Actually, one of the things that we've been able to do now that we've been doing it over five years, we've done over 400 projects, and we've verified over 30,000 leaks within our points of interest. And so that's a significant amount of data. And that does, of course, actively feed our algorithm. It's updated all the time. But the key thing from there is that we have found that the mix of leaks, there's a couple of interesting components to it. One is the mix of leaks on whether it's on a hydrant, a valve, a service, a meter, or main leaks. It matches about what AWWA, American Water Works Association, is stating for mix of leaks within utilities. Pretty close to that. So we know the dynamic mix of where the leaks are occurring within our points of interest. But also within that, we get a sense of the kind of leak. And we're often asked, is it a big leak or a little leak that you're seeing? We see literally dripping spigots, and we can see major main leaks on trunk mains 24 inch and above diameter leaks. The mix that we're seeing really is the impact of the reflective signal. So soils will act like a sponge. And as leaks are occurring, it can be a small leak over a long period of time that's giving this capillary effect or a saturated sponge, if you will. Or it can be a big leak over a short period of time. So you see us being able to pick up small leaks, like a dripping hose on a house, or a big leak, which could be a distribution main within a system. So if you can find, essentially the dripping hose on the house, right? It's after the meter for your utility. So what's the solution? How are you distinguishing for the utility, whether it's a customer issue dripping hose or whether it's a leak in an actual main? The most important thing for our utilities is one, of course, most utilities say, listen, I really want to find that big leak that's on a main that's ready to blow downtown on Main Street, going to cause major damage. And while, yes, we certainly find those, the sheer fact is that maintaining water systems, it's a grind. It can often be death by a thousand cuts. And so every leak matters, whether it's a small leak on the customer side or a big leak on a main. The key component is we're a key driver, motivator for doing a system survey, and that includes field surveys. So as a tool to understand your system, we can provide via a new product that we have, which is called Master Plan. We can essentially give a deficiency grading to an entire system, and that will allow utilities to try and, rather than going through their entire system, focus on key areas of their system. And so by doing the field work, you're now effectively able to go recover those leaks and know where they are. 
And I'll give you a few examples. Once you do that system survey, you get a sense of not only are your hydrants leaking, what are the age of the hydrants that are typically leaking, the name, the manufacturer, same with meters, which are the manufacturers of meters that are leaking in greater magnitude and the age of those and the area and is it services. That's a lot of information for them to better manage and maintain overall beyond just leak detection. And even when it may be revenue water, meaning customer side leaks, as a courtesy in PR campaign, every leak does matter because overall water is becoming more and more scarce as populations are growing and infrastructure is leaking at a, failing at a greater rate. Often utilities will provide customers with a note on the door that says, hey, you have a leak on your side, please attend to it. And more and more regulation comes into place so that it keeps not only utilities accountable, but also users and customers accountable for their water and water use. Yeah, I would think that on the customer notice issue, if a utility has a, you know, like a smart meter system, they could even, you know, interface with that customer dashboard and notify the customer that way. That seems like another thing. But I really like how you're approaching this. Now, what are you finding in terms of these 30,000 plus leaks that you've identified? Are they more of the, you know, pinhole type leaks? Or, you know, what do you, what has the number of leaks you've been able to identify told you about the types of leaks our utilities are experiencing? Well, it is really a grind. I wish I could tell you that the lion's share of it is on mains, but it's simply not. It's a lot of services, a lot of leaking meters. And that matches, again, what the assumption is for AWWA. So about 20% or so of the leaks that we're verifying are on mains. They're main leaks of some type. They may be a service line leading into the main. And the rest are a dynamic mix of about another 20% to 30% on service leaks. And then you have hydrants and valves and as well meters that are leaking accordingly for the rest of the balance, the other half of them, so to speak. Yeah. What about has, so you're looking at the signature of drinking water. And I'm curious, have you ever used this synthetic aperture radar technology to help systems find alternative supplies? Like if there's a, is there groundwater located nearby? Has that ever come up? Sure does. We are diversifying while we cut our teeth on probably the hardest thing to do, which is to build an algorithm with the specific signature of water and drinking water. It's needless to say, it is not a big step for us to adjust to be able to refine the algorithm for wastewater. And that is for extrusion or leakage on wastewater systems, both forced main wastewater systems and gravity systems. But we've also diversified into soil moisture. We are actively right now developing and gone beyond proof of concept and into active contracts for the movement of all moisture below ground. And those are for multiple applications. One could be for wastewater systems for our utility friends where I and I 
um, and, and sanitary sewer overflows are inundating systems and that generates um, the attention of the EPA um, because of the sanitary sewer overflows. Needless to say, it's an environmental hazard. And so utilities do need to know where water, all moisture is below ground, how, how, how much moisture there is, and is it moving over time through, through seasonality or wet and dry uh, years uh, over time. And we can provide that in a monitoring service of all moisture below ground. And then that also leads us into things like earth and dam monitoring applications, combining not only topography slope with moisture, but where mudslides could occur for railroad monitoring, as well as roads and highway development. Really, the sky's the limit in terms of application for all moisture below ground. And since we're a data company and doing remote sensing analytics, um, the, it is limitless potential for us, which is part of the excitement of what you're seeing in the explosion of satellites and remote sensing um, coming to the forefront today. Yeah, it's fascinating. Have you ever heard of irrigators using uh, this type of technology to determine you know, when they irrigate rather than just kind of blindly going, okay, every Tuesday and Thursday we irrigate? It, it is absolutely an application for, for farming and irrigation in general. Um, most smaller farmers are looking for ultra low cost solutions um, for uh, managing and maintaining, but there are huge corporations that are maintaining big swaths of land and needless to say, water costs are quite significant overall in food production. And we do have the ability to add a greater level of resolution. It's no different than what we've done for our efficiency play on leak detection. We have the ability to provide a broader level of res resolution on percents of soil moisture um, than you can with active uh, water monitoring devices that are usually only covering maybe one per acre. We'll have a greater degree of resolution than that one sensor on an acre can provide. And the other key thing is that quite interesting is the depth at which we're pro providing it. You're now looking at moisture at the root level and that's where the original health is. A lot of LIDAR um, irrigation monitoring is looking at the surface and when leaves are changing, that is giving an indication of over and under irrigating. But by the time those leaves are starting to, to fade, pretty much the damage is done. So if we're looking at the root health, that gives a better and earlier indicator of, of, of moisture and irrigation uh, that's occurring below ground. Oh, absolutely fascinating. Well, uh, Jim, you, you knew this question was coming. What, uh, how, how does, how, what kind of cost are we talking here? I mean, if you've, if, if you've had systems deploy uh, it enough to make, to find 30,000 leaks, I imagine it's, it's a, it's a fairly reasonable cost, but I mean, do you have any with without kind of giving away secret pricing information? But what what can someone expect to pay, or what can a utility expect to pay for this type of service? Yeah, there's two pieces to that, and I always like to be very direct with it as much as we can. And there is some level of variability, particularly on our leak detection products. We have followed the standard methodologies, which is generally a price per linear mile. Um, and, and within the U.S., I'll, I'll talk, speak specifically to the U.S., that um, we're charging uh, commensurate to a linear price per mile 
the greater the frequency of deliveries, because doing one snapshot, while we can cover about 1,400 square miles with our images, another key feature we can cover in one snapshot an entire utility and or utilities, up to 20 utilities within our image. What we've done is done a snapshot of one image price per mile and multiple images. Usually larger utilities are doing four deliveries per year of four images, and the prices can range between about $40 per linear mile up to $80 per linear mile. So that gives a direct answer to that. And just as important to that is we find in general, depending on the water costs for a utility, that we're about a six-month ROI. And what that means is the amount of water that we're recovering and turning that back into revenue water from non-revenue water and all those underlying costs and efforts to find, dig, fix, and repair it, we see an ROI of about six months. So all the other funds that are going into it are recovered by the utility. And that translates into, for us, the marketing statement is the lowest cost per leak found in the industry today. That's a great point. I'm so glad you brought up the ROI issue because that's really where utility managers ought to be looking to make their investments, especially in this area, which not only enhances their supply, but it stops the waste of the resource. So, Jim, you've been terrific today. What have I not asked you that you think is important for the listener to hear from you? Well, the exciting part from our perspective is we're just getting started. It's amazing the potential for synthetic aperture radar and what we're doing. We have been all about water. We have done our part on sustainability, water recovery, and managing and maintaining this precious resource. We've done it now for five years successfully, highly successfully on the drinking water side of the house. And you can start to look for us continuing to diversify what we're doing into wastewater, reclaimed water, and all soil moisture applications that are coming. And they're coming in the near future as well, too. The addition of our new product master plan now allows you to be able to do sort of an overall system asset so that we've been able to grade piping based on what we're actually seeing from a sensor in the sky. And then overall, the most important part is there's really three key components and learnings that I've had over the last five years. We either need to make money for utilities by recovering that lost water. We need to save money for these utilities by more efficiently managing and maintaining their systems. And we need to be key in ensuring that they're regulatory compliant. And we certainly check the box in all three of those. But really, it's about that technology. Yes, we're about the company and what we're doing. But the balance of this technology is now going to go into maintaining and monitoring soil moisture below ground for everything from gas and oil leakage to earth and dam monitoring 
to roads and highways and and railroad maintenance as well too it's an exciting future for us yeah awesome it sounds sounds terrific uh so so if i could you've been absolutely fantastic today jim i really i've i've learned a tremendous amount and it's uh, it's it's been very great speaking with you uh what what's your leave behind message the leave behind message is we're just getting started. Anything that has to do with soil moisture below ground is uh, is really key for us. And um, the amount of disruptive innovation is only limited by the creative energy of any uh, manager, scientist, engineer, plumber uh, that's uh, looking to do things better than we've done it before. Awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Uh, for those who want to find out more about you, more about Utilis and, and your product offerings, where can they go to get that information? The easiest way is our robust website with, with chock full of uh, all information across what we're providing today, including case studies and all contact information. Reach out to us at www. Uh, dot utilis corp u-t-i-l-i-s-c-o-r-p dot com awesome well again jim thanks so much for coming on really appreciate your time and we'll talk to you soon thank you so much david all right bye now bye-bye well i really enjoyed that conversation with jim and just when you think you're gonna uh what can they come up with next jim arrives to tell us about synthetic aperture radar uh, just a fascinating discussion. And, you know, like I said, at the big top of the show, your mind just starts to race with all the different applications that synthetic aperture radar could be used for in the water sector. It's just, uh, it, it, it's really got an unlimited um, uh, horizon out there. And I, I was very happy uh, that Jim brought up the ROI and he said it was about six months is what utilities are experiencing. So I think that is, uh, that'll, that'll catch some utilities eyes uh, to see that you can you can get your money back in six months and start earning a return on your investment uh, to to uh, get your leaks taken care of. Well, let me know what you liked about that episode. Please check out the show notes for the page. Uh, just Google the Water Values Podcast and click on the first thing that comes up. It's the landing page over at Bluefield Research. Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are separate entities, but we have a joint marketing arrangement kind of. Uh, I'd love for you to tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water, water values. And you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM one nine nine three. And you can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter. Again, Google the water values podcast, click the first link that comes up. There'll be a box to, to where you can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, well, thank you again for tuning in and a huge, huge, huge thank you to our sponsors again, the sponsors of the Water Values podcast include Woodard and Curran, Interra, Xylem, Black and Veach, the American Waterworks Association, and Can Do. This show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Well, thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else. Additionally, nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.